0: Hey, I'm Luca, and this is Little Infinities. Uh, With me today is Carlos Yostin. Hello, how's it going? Uh, Now, Carlos, you're a mechanical engineering student at CU Boulder, right?
1: Yeah, uh, I am a mechanical engineering student at CU Boulder.
0: All right, uh, but you're also an artist. Now,
1: yeah, no, absolutely. I love art.
0: I guess one of my questions that I've always had is, what is the bridge between... Art and engineering, like, how do those relate? Because we live in this society of, like, you know, very much, like, left or right brain. Uh, How do you interpret that?
1: Well, I do love that question. Um, I have a few levels to that. But first, I want to just say that, you know, thank you so much, Luca, for having me on. We've been really good friends, best friends since high school. So this is kind of cool. We, I mean, you know me, we've always kind of been on the more like creative side of just thinking about different things and a little bit unwilling to accept that um, the facts that are laid out right now describe the entirety of our world. And I guess that's kind of why I really like mechanical engineering and why I did uh, change majors during my time at university uh, at CU Boulder. Um, And it's because I am really, I love design and I just want to be either in product design or in uh, like the design of robots or satellites or rockets. I mean, I'm, I'm in love with the aerospace industry, but I, I changed out of that major specifically because uh, I felt a little misleaded with how the major was. And you know, in mechanical engineering, that, that's who designs it. It's mechanical engineers design the rockets, design the satellites. They, they fundamentally are the ones with the expertise and experience to work different modeling programs and know the material science behind what's going into it. So that's why I am a mechanical engineer and because I'm also just in love with science. But I, I feel like mechanical engineering is is a almost marriage. I, I mean, I guess architects uh, are a little bit more married to the design side of things. Um, and you know, I love architecture, looking at architecture and I guess there was some point where I had to draw the line and make a decision as to what I wanted to do. But I mean, art is one of those things that I see in everything and it, it's just beauty. And uh, I mean, it's, it's hard to, it really is hard to describe why, these things kind of fit together, but I mean, you're kind of right in that the two disciplines, they almost seem like separate disciplines. Like they are in the college sense. You have a college of arts uh, and then you have your sciences, right? Sometimes they can get a little bit more married and those go into like the social sciences, which I find very fascinating. Uh, a lot of people who call themselves academics don't give social sciences very much credit, but um, and, and they don't give art so much credit, it seems, even though, uh, like, you know, half the engineers you talk to probably couldn't even draw anything.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I've, I've, I've uh, had my fair share of uh, artistically challenged engineers. Yeah, that's for sure. Why do you think that, like, there's that stigma around, you know, art versus science or art versus engineering, or like, you know, left brain, right brain? Why do you think that exists?
1: That's a, that's a fascinating question, man. Um, uh, instinctually I want to say uh, objectivity versus subjectivity so uh, art is insanely subjective I mean it's all about what you find beautiful what we don't tend to realize is that's kind of how science was driven for a really long time uh, a lot of people in science try to pretend that it's purely objective that there there's no bias in science if that were true then uh, people like Newton, Einstein, Galileo wouldn't have pursued what they wanted to pursue. They, They were seeking universal truths. And in a universal truth, there is beauty. And many of what they expected to happen was driven by this notion that everything's symmetric, that there's unique properties that are just innate and beautiful about the universe. It's understandable that people think That they should be separated because many of the times Galileo, Newton, Einstein were proven to be a little short-sighted. Because they bound themselves in their subjectivity and weren't purely objective. But there's also the argument that if they weren't, they wouldn't have ever made the discoveries they did. So I think that it's as a human, as somebody who lives in the constant subjectiveness of reality... You know, you, there's, there's no other person to tell you how you're experiencing the world than yourself. And it's a, how your conscious experience is in the world is pure subjectiveness. In order to practice an objective methodology like the scientific method, it's innately ingrained with
0: subjectivity. That kind of brings up the idea of, you know, well, if, if everything is what we observe, then, uh. And that is subjective. Then, by definition, wouldn't even science be up uh, be subjective? I
1: mean, yes, I, to to a large degree, science is very subjective. We're we're at a scary point where lots of people are calling into question what facts are and what aren't. And I don't want to get too much into that, but science is subjective in terms of what you make of your observations. Because if it were just pure observations, there'd be there'd be no theorems that we can create from them. There has to be some level of subjectivity. There has to be in order to make a hypothesis, test that hypothesis, make it into a theorem, transition to that into a well-accepted theory uh, over time with more and more and more evidence. But nothing can be ever 100% proven. You can get really, really close. Those are almost accepted as truths. We're always looking to push our understanding further. And I don't, I don't think there will ever be a 100% fundamental understanding of what's going on. And so in that sense, there always has to be subjectivity when discussing it. And that, that's where it comes, and you're totally right. It, it's a very subjective... I mean, science is just through the lens of humans who are subjective
0: creatures. What are some truths that you find in that subjectivity uh, for yourself?
1: If I look at... Just myself, and I, and I try to see where I'm subjective and not. I mean, you know, uh, one of the easiest dividing lines that you can see is politics. But in, in terms of science and art, um, I mean, art, easily subjective. I, I am a big fan of uh, photorealism and non-photorealism. I admire the technicality of photorealism, and that in itself is subjective. Even though you could argue it's not creative, but I would I would say the creativity comes from choosing what you want to draw photorealistically. There's something that has to be said about anything that's more abstract or surreal or simple or minimalistic, because the decisions that go through somebody's mind into what to leave out and what to enhance or change or satirize, that in itself is a whole different level. Uh, you know, I guess I find myself enjoying that more, and that's a that's a very subjective opinion. I mean, I see it in that in in terms of uh, science. I see myself admiring people with lofty ambitions. That doesn't mean, I guess, I admire their ambitions more than them their ambitions more than themselves. You know, take somebody like Elon Musk. I, I admire what he's doing in terms of wanting to get us to Mars, wanting to get a foothold into the stars cuz there is something romantic about this nomadic nature of people but i don't i don't necessarily admire everything about the guy I, I think there's a lot of him that i you know i don't
0: really like there's goods and bads about every person you just talked about like our innate desire to discover the stars why do you think we've always dreamt of traveling to the stars
1: i think a i think a big part of that is just spirituality you know Early humans didn't have the database we have. They they had to base their opinions off of a constantly changing database. I mean, they had oral histories, which themselves are very beautiful and sometimes poetic. You know, a lot of valuable information just inherently gets lost because of passing down generation through generation oral histories, they become myths and legends and contort reality ever so slightly each generation happens. You know, we were tribalistic humans for hundreds of thousands of years uh, before we even settled down to have agriculture. And throughout that whole time, people are migrating. They're moving, following herds. They're using up the resources of their current environment and then moving on to the next place. And, you know, that caused conflict a lot of the time, but they were always on the move and they, they guided themselves through these little points in light that to them in their short life were static that they would never really change in the entire time that they were there. They knew that it had a yearly cycle and they can always track when they were in this cycle and where they were. And they kept that information really well. You know, they're looking at these stars, you know, you can't help but think with these pretty lights in the sky, you have no idea what they are, you don't have telescopes, you don't have... uh, theories about gravity. You don't know that there are other planets out there. And you look around at the beautifulness of nature and the fact that you're constantly on the move, I think maybe there was always something missing in somebody's life, Like, like this utopia that we can all imagine. That just translates to today. The fact that we still have a very similar brain to those early people, so much so that we're still not considered a different species. You could take somebody from 50, 60,000 years ago uh, as a baby and probably raised them to be very functional in today's world. That, that just goes to show, I think, that our nomadic lifestyle, the, the romanticism that we apply, either whether or not that romanticism is good or bad, it, it exists. And that romanticism is traveling somewhere else, living somewhere else, and the fact that we know more about space and these beautiful magic lights in the sky. Nowadays, you can't even see if you're in a city, but the the fact that we can have artist renditions of beautiful worlds light years away that we can never even hope in our lifetimes unless we discover a whole fundamentally new set of physics to ever explore. Just that impossibility is romantic because we've already achieved the impossible, knowing how we're living today. Not necessarily that we're living happier than before, but we're living a lifestyle once thought impossible. And because we have the same brains as we have had for hundreds of thousands of years, we're going to feel like we're missing something. And we're going to struggle in almost any environment we're put into, because that's just who we are. We're always gonna search for that utopia and that wanderlust. I, I don't know. I feel like that wa- wanderlust is just going to stay there. Don't you think, like, it'll be a while before we get out of this non... Before we get out of this nomadic brain into a non-nomadic brain.
0: So, Carlos, you talked a lot about, like, uh, romanticizing. Logically speaking, that's not really, like, uh, evolutionarily advantageous, I guess. So why do you think we do it so much?
1: Oh, I, I think it is evolutionarily a- uh, advantageous. For what reasons? My thoughts are that we evolved to be social creatures and to survive in a herd. And as we got smarter in order to deal with things like changing herds, migrational seasons, and we had to just get smarter in order to support the fact that we were humans. And as we got smarter, obviously questions arose that just can't be answered immediately by nature. And it wasn't until we started cataloging and recording our observations on paper, or I guess on even tablets, that we, we started to be able to build our information off of old information. Romanticism, I think, was evolutionarily advantageous in those early stages because we, we had these questions, and if they went unanswered, if we just could not be creative enough to come up with a romantic answer, there wouldn't have been as much of a motivating drive to even try. I think the fact that we do try, that that those early people found a way to keep living in such a rough environment. I mean, they hunted for their food every single day. They gathered, they followed uh, migratory herds, or they didn't. They lived in deserts and they managed to survive. There are tons and tons of different ways early humans survived, all uniquely adapted to their environment and all using the same set of innate skills, like thought skills. Like their cranial capacity was very similar, but they they applied it to different things like knowledge about what plants to eat, what plants not to eat, being able to pass that down, what animals to hunt, what animals to stay away from, and to be able to track the stars. The effort required, I think, needs some sort of motivating force in order to be pursued. So I I think romanticism kind of went hand in hand with our social behavior. And if we weren't able to satisfactorily say that this is why we exist, or, you know, and it could have been for any reason, it could have been, oh, you know, we exist because God made this world for us. Don't you see the pretty lights? Don't you see the magnificent vistas? Don't you see how beautiful these animals are and how good this food tastes? This world was meant for us. That, that was their thought. And that's a romantic worldview, even though we we kind of know it's wrong, but wrong or right doesn't matter in evolution it just matters about survival so i I guess in my mind i think that our survival was dependent on being able to internally rationalize the futility of our existence
0: life finds a way that's actually a cool quote how what do you romanticize to uh you know get through your days like for example like you said that you went in initially as an aerospace engineer, uh, and now you're a mechanical engineer. Like, like what what, what, do, what romanticizations have you used to uh, not necessarily survive, but to flourish?
1: I think a lot of my romanticizations kind of hurt me uh, at at first when I when I left high school. They they were very lofty, and, and I, I didn't do as much research. I didn't think as worldly. I, I think. You know, we're all growing up still. You you never really stop, nor should you. But I guess looking back at my decisions, I I chose to be an aerospace engineer because I I loved that nomadic romanticization of going out and being one of the first colonizers in the stars. Uh, I wanted to go and develop these spacecraft and these technologies that would help progress humanity into a a next generation of space travel. Uh, that That was my ambition, that I wanted to be a part of that movement. I I thought aerospace engineering has it in its name. Uh, That's what I got to do. So I went in two years later. uh, I didn't even like start looking at internships until two years later. And a minute I get into my first internship. And one of the first things that I honestly experienced was being an aerospace engineer is a very important job, especially, I mean, obviously in the aerospace uh, industry. And, and what the job is, what most aerospace engineers do is they are kind of like air traffic control for airplanes at an airport, except they do that with satellites. And they have to be a little bit more in tune with the whole engineering aspects of the craft themselves because they're the ones monitoring each individual part of the satellite. They, they have to make sure that it's gimbal is m- making sure that the satellite is pointing and taking pictures at the right spot at the right time, making sure it has enough fuel to move out of the way. If space debris comes into its orbit and is uh, expected to collide, make sure that they have enough fuel, but don't use all of it, right? Obviously, because that's going to happen so many times over the course of the the project's lifespan. They, they have to worry about that, keep track of that. They have a lot more. They have to keep track of in terms of their knowledge than an aircraft controller does, just not in terms of volume. I think aircraft controllers probably have the most stressful job in the world because of volume, sheer volume of everything going on at once. I know it's, it's like that scene from Gravity where the space, the, the satellites are hitting each other and then the debris fields are exploding and getting into other debris paths. And it's just really creating a huge mess. And it's, and it's, a, it's a snowball effect. That's kind of what aircraft controllers are dealing with every day is that much stuff leaving and entering the airport. And that's why it's so stressful. Despite how much stuff there is out in space, there's still enough space that they they only really need to worry about the individual systems of each craft. So they're not quite at the aircraft controller stress level yet. The stress kind of comes with, while the job isn't necessarily the most difficult you could possibly have, It it deals with the most expensive things you could possibly have. Like you don't want somebody that is just okay at their job dealing with multi-billion dollar satellites because while somebody who's just okay with their job might be very successful for 10, 15, 20 years, they might have one accident that costs the company billions and billions of dollars. Whereas they just don't want to take that chance. It's a monetary risk and it's stress associated with the money of going into space, not necessarily with the difficulty. And, and that, that's where I think an aerospace engineer's job lies. And I, I did an internship just doing those things and did not want to do that. And, and I decided I want to go into mechanical engineering, hopefully in the same industry, because I, I want to still do those things of progress, I guess, help progress us into a more uh, spacefaring civilization. But I want to do it in a more design-oriented aspect. And that's what mechanical engineers do. They, they focus on how to build it, not how to maintain it. And I guess that, that, that's the long story short.
0: Your dreams when you were in high school, when you left high school, were, I want to you know, help travel the stars. I want to be a stepping stone, or I want to travel the stars myself. Um, well, why? Why do you specifically want that? Not specifically like humans as a whole species, but why do you? as an individual, want
1: that? 17-year-old me wanted that because I wanted to meet aliens first. I I, I wanted the the glory. Very naive, very romantic, very naive. I don't think that way uh, anymore. I I kind of now kind of see the writing on the wall that it's almost impossible right now to travel faster than the speed of light unless some completely new area of physics is discovered. And I'm not smart enough to do that myself. With so many other factors going on in the world in the last four years since then, it's been a wild roller coaster of changing ideals. What what matters most to myself? I, I'm kind of glad I also changed to mechanical engineering just in case I'm not going to go into that field or industry. And uh, I love it and I want to keep up with it. But right now, it almost seems like I'm more worried about where we currently are, this, this speck of dust in the whole cosmos that we find ourselves on is falling apart and, and it's in my mind becoming more and more ludicrous to prioritize something like that than something very romantic like going out and exploring then making sure that those we leave behind are okay.
0: What are your priorities then I guess like why, why, why do you have those priorities of you know caring about where we are not you know, dreaming off into the future? Why, why and what do you care about specifically in that?
1: Well, I, I had a lot of life events that happened to me, good or bad, both, both good and bad. Really, really awesome life experiences and really, really poor ones that kind of steered me to where I am today, which is I, I very much admire my own family in terms of their dedication and how I can talk to them and just the kinds of conversations and worries that we share and and I've grown to think about them more they're they're my priority and you know those who are really close to me and I feel like I can do more for them than I have been doing and I guess uh, a lot of my priority is on myself on becoming a little bit better uh, or trying to be trying not to be as selfish or hypocritical Um, and and sometimes I feel like Falling into a romantic trap can be that way. It almost seems like romanticism, having been almost almost a benefit for hundreds of thousands of years, is now almost a detriment. Because romanticism innately ignores the little things that could go wrong. And I think in this world, those little things that could go wrong kind of are going wrong. Murphy's Law. Right. My priorities have shifted, and that's why. And they've shifted more. Uh, I, I hate to say it, but I guess in the grand scheme of things, more selfishly um, in terms of like impact that I want to have. Although, I would argue that before when I was 17 and going into college, it was a selfish want to be able to give so much, right? To be able to have so much of an impact, to leave such a large legacy. Uh, It wasn't really for the benefit of anything besides myself to leave such a large legacy. And now, I feel like personally, my ambitions and thoughts have shrunk because I just think that naturally will happen. I, I think many people have very lofty ambitions at first. Probably don't realize them, and I'm no special person at all. But they, they're they're more helpful to those around me. Immediately, they're more tangible, and you can see the results. And I'm I'm happy about that because these people in my life make me happy. And if I can see that what I'm doing has tangible, real effects on their quality of life that's what matters more to me now than the overall impact i could have on everybody i, I think you have to start locally because then it could be more of a uh, like a snowball effect from yourself rather than a top-down view
0: we're running out of time here but um i guess i have one more question for you is uh how do you define legacy and what does legacy mean to you
1: oof I, I think it's funny you ask me this. Uh, this was one of the college essays I had to write. Um, and it was just, it was one of those really vague ones. And I, I chose to write it on legacy. And it's funny, at the time, I kind of wrote something I didn't fully internalize until until more recently. And that was, I didn't, I, I wrote that legacy shouldn't matter and that the drive to leave a legacy for some people, I think makes them worse off in terms of their effect on humanity. It makes their motivation selfish. And I think the notion that you should even leave a legacy before you even fully know yourself is selfish. Should you leave a legacy? Is your experience valuable enough? And I'm not sure about that for myself. And I don't know if I now have a drive to completely leave a legacy because as much as what i think i know is valuable and righteous and correct and beautiful it it could all be wrong and i could actually be believing things that are detrimental and harmful and i could have a closed mind and i would never know it's really difficult uh to reach out and do those kinds of things and so Leaving a legacy just inherently is a selfish motivator. Now it's not, it's, it's almost a motivator that's impossible to leave. Uh, I still have notions that I want to make, I, I want to leave a good impact on the world, which is a good legacy. But the notion of that is in itself a selfish notion. So you know, we are selfish. It's not necessarily the worst thing. You have to make sure you help yourself before you know you can help others. But the, the notion of legacy is inherently selfish. I don't know if that's good or bad. I think many people with very lofty legacies tend to think of themselves more than others. That leads to things that are more negative. I, I, I don't really have a, a great answer on this one. And I don't know, maybe we should all strive to be more humble and that legacy should mean a little bit less in terms of what's on everybody's mind. Uh, when compared to making sure that other people around you can leave their own impacts and legacy.
0: You answered like, um, you know, what does it mean to you, but how do you define legacy?
1: I guess your impact on the world, uh, good or bad, I guess that is your legacy. What people remember you by and not necessarily what they remember you by. I mean, that, that's included, but also the, the reverberations of your actions, the consequences of your life. That's your legacy.
0: That's actually really cool. I never thought of it that way. We're running out of time here, but uh, do you have any final uh, comments or thoughts that you'd like to leave for people listening at home?
1: <laughs> you know, well, I guess one comment is I, I really appreciate you doing this. I, I love talking to you and um, you yourself have quite amazing thoughts. And uh, hopefully as this continues, you can you can start to give... Uh, allude to some more of those yourself and I, I really enjoyed having this experience for anybody out there we are not role models in in a typical sense that you should follow everything we do I don't think anybody is that, that's why I think valuing legacy so much shouldn't matter uh, worrying about it is not is good you should worry about your life consequences the consequences you have on other people but that shouldn't be you shouldn't strive for a certain set because you'll never know fully what the legacy is you leave behind. So what you should worry about is the people around you because the people around you are what make you happy. And our in our little primate brain, we lived in tribes of 150 or so people. And uh, that's who we're evolved to connect and stay with. And we only had a close knit within those 150 people that we considered friends and the rest were acquaintances and people that helped us survive so be nice to the people who help you survive who are in your tight-knit that includes uh you know your uh baristas at the coffee place you go to every morning because they're they would be in your close-knit tribe even though they're not your friends or even necessarily acquaintances but they keep you alive grocery store workers nurses your family uh whether they're good or bad that's what you got sadly enough um and be at least in our in our current world the benefit of modernness is it, in a sense you can choose your family right you can you can grab people that are in a similar position as you or understand you and you can make them your family and i, I really encourage that and that that what family means is that you can go wrong and you can do something bad and somebody will be honest with you and Forgive you, but help you not make that mistake in the future. We should all try to do that with each other and recognize that we ourselves are constantly making mistakes and needing help and correction and guidance even if we don't know it. Because if you're perfect, then it kind of breaks the rules of physics because nothing's like that except for the innate nature of reality.
0: Well, thank you so much, Carlos.
1: Thank you, Luca. Yeah,
0: and uh, just in case you uh, skip the intro, this is Luca. I'm Carlos Yostin. This is The Little Infinities. I'll see you guys next week.